We are back at the DLD AI Summit in uh, Munich, Germany on a lovely late summer afternoon in, uh, in late August. Uh, it's very warm outside, it's warm inside too in terms of discussions on AI. I'm doing a panel later, the big picture outlook. One of the guys on it is my guest on Keenan today, Moritz Schullerich. He is the president of the Kiel Institute for the World Economy, one of Europe's top economists, and he was one of the co-inventors of the word Chimerica as well. So he has influence not just in Germany, but in America and China. Uh, Moritz, the big picture. Are we at a Gutenberg moment when it comes to AI? Is this about to revolutionize everything? Clear yes, with a little bit of, well, some of it we've seen before, but it is, it is a breakthrough moment, just like the invention of book printing, the advent of AI will give us uh, opportunities to spread ideas, generate new ideas, share knowledge, generate new knowledge in a way that we have seen rarely in human history. There's a part of AI, and I think this is, we need to distinguish the two, that I think is, 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 is something of what we've seen before. It's automation, it's, 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 it's increasing the use of like robot, robotics, etc. But there is a generative new idea and in in, in, in new, new, new possibilities to explore and generate ideas. Most people have always associated the role of AI with smart machines, of replacing humans with jobs. As an economist, is that what this Gutenberg moment is about? Are we all about in our knowledge economy to lose our jobs? Not all of us, but there are certainly big parts of jobs and tasks that we thought were immune from automation that are now not. And, and if you think about uh, medical and legal professions, there's going to be a lot of change coming. And it's going to be interesting also politically because these are, you know, lawyers and doctors are people with influence. So they're going to use the yeah, to build mildly. So they will use the political system, the regulatory system to, of course, slow this down in a way that uh, might not benefit all of us. That is, uh, that, so that's going to come. That is something that we've seen in other parts of the economy, you know, use of automation machines, of, of robots, uh, but it will come closer near you. Yeah. In historical terms, then, would a better analogy be, I mean, Gutenberg was, of course, influential, and certainly lots of monks lost their jobs as writers of books. But is a more appropriate historical analogy the invention of the steam engine in the late, 90, uh, late 18th century? I, I would go with Gutenberg. I would go with book printing. It's, it's, I think the revolutionary potential of AI is in the generation of new ideas, of combinations that we haven't seen before. Just like books and the spread of knowledge allowed for new combinations, new ideas not only just store the, the, the wisdom and the knowledge we already have, but like people reading it and having developing new ideas, combining things that they couldn't combine before. I think that's what AI can do as a really revolutionary thing. And the steam engine, yeah, okay, it allowed us to substitute, you know, um, for, for uh, human labor, use energy, use fossil fuels. It's a little bit more of a mechanical thing. So I think this idea generation really is key also for long-term growth. In economic terms, do you see AI as a clean break with the internet, with our social media age, with the digital revolution, or is it just the next chapter in digital? 
It's a good question. I think it's 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 in many many ways. Of course, it's like once it builds on that. It builds on the digital age. It builds on the internet. We're using these large models. You know, we train them on on or pe the people use them to to train them on the internet and all the data that's been generated there. But they have, of course, the potential not only to reduce the marginal cost of spreading information, but they have the potential to re reduce the marginal cost of creating new content, of doing new things to pretty much zero. And that is, that is something that we haven't seen before. We keep on hearing about reducing the price of everything to zero. As an economist, do you actually believe that? I do believe that, the, that AI will trigger massive price change, relative price changes in the economy and that will have distributional consequences. Be it on the labor market where certain professions are just not going to be paid as well because AIs can do it. Um, but also in the production of uh, content of, you know, we've seen it in journalism already that, you know, a lot of things uh, can be done much cheaper than before. So that will have massive consequences. And I, I do worry about not only about like the spread of false information and influencing elections and all the things that you can do with AIs, but also about the distributional consequences. So if you think about the steam engine, it took quite a while for, and there's actually a nice new book, uh, on this, it took it took quite a while for the benefits of that productivity jump to be distributed more widely and lead to stable societies and, and sort of a fair distribution of the gains. And and, and the, 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 in, the, in the case of AI, we have the same problem that uh, you know the, the risk is that a lot of these productivity gains go to very few people. You it's good for those people, obviously, but you know it's maybe not well, good for it's not just people, is it? Um, companies, it's, it's it's a winner-take-all economy, a winner-take-all culture, uh, a world of billionaires, multi-billionaires, uh, trillion, multi-trillion-dollar companies. What we see in economic terms, the disappearance of the middle, and and this seems to be a feature of post-industrial society. It's not just AI. I think that's that's a correct statement. I think we have seen across many economies that the middle class has done poorly in the last 40 years in terms of income gains. They've been kind of kept happy in a way because their main asset, housing, has, has gone up as, as interest rates have come down. So the middle class didn't have much income gains, but they got richer because their houses appreciated in value. And that has kept things together. But uh, I agree with you that technological disruptions and innovations like AI have the potential to concentrate even more income at the top and we'll need to find ways to deal with that and it's going to be very hard to uh, adjust the tax system to get the global cooperation necessary for that to happen. You mentioned it as a Gutenberg moment. Of course, after Gutenberg there was a uh, hundred years of war in Central Europe. Mm -hmm. well, some of the most gruesome wars in human history. Are you fearful of that as a consequence? Uh, not just as an economist, but as someone who observes inequality. Many of your colleagues, Piketty, for example, other mm -hmm. uh, Emmanuel Sainz, who's been on the show, many uh, European economists are more and more concerned about inequality. Yeah, and, and American economists, I'd say. I think it's an it's a overall um, a trend that we tend to now look at distributional questions because we worry about political and social stability. I think the, the analogy to the Gutenberg uh, um, moment uh, then leading to the spread of all kind of religious uh, pamphlets and then ultimately 100 years of war in Europe 
is today the potential that AI has to influence elections, to radicalize uh, populations, to be abused also by foreign players to influence, you know, a lot of us are thinking about 2024 elections in the US. So there is new media and new technologies always have that potential also to uh, disrupt the political process. So I am worried about um, the regulation of AI, also this, the, the, like the, if you, if you, if you look at some of these amazing things that come out of different AI applications now, you, it, it becomes really hard to differentiate what is real, what is not, even more than it was in the Twitter age with, uh, with, uh, you know, um, uh, fake news, etc. So now we get fake news that look really, really convincing and that are really, really targeted by an agent that has some, sm some, some intelligence that is a big danger. Yeah. Economists are supposed to tell us what real or isn't. You suggested that AI will dramatically uh, disrupt, which is a euphemism for perhaps destroying uh, journalism, creativity. What about the academic, mm -hmm. law, medicine? What about economists? Are they challenged by AI? Can you have uh, AI bots who can even compete as economists with guys like you, heads of the Keel Foundation? I do, I do think that uh, the, the mathiness, uh, the math part of economics, the, the, these skills will likely be devalued by AI because um, we will get um, a much better at routinizing these tasks and, 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 and formulating these problems. So I tell my students that what you really can contribute is, 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 a, is a creative part where you use these tools to uh, really compete uh, with in, in the future also with artificial intelligence to um, think deeper, think more holistic, go to the connections that haven't been made. So it's a, it's it's definitely a challenge for all of us. Um, I think there's certain areas of entertainment and music and and maybe also manual tasks that are reasonably safe for the time being, because we still love to go to a concert and see it live uh, played by humans and. Uh, you know, it still takes 40 minutes to play the last movement of Beethoven's Ninth and AI won't change that. So we will pay a lot of money to see those people perform for us. But for other professions, including economists, times will get harder. Yeah. What does it look like in terms of regulation? I know you're an economist rather than someone who focuses on regulation. But given the way in which governments seem increasingly incapable of regulating tech companies, maybe the Europeans are slightly better at it or more interested at being good at it than the Americans. But might this all result in the revitalization of the value of central governments, of regulatory organizations able to take on big tech, multi-trillion dollar private companies? If you, if you compare the current moment to, you know, we've been talking about the Oppenheimer moment a lot in, in recent, in recent uh, weeks, um, that Manhattan Project was a big government project. It was done under government, um, you know, with government funding and government ownership and government control for good reason because the it was so powerful that uh, you wanted in the end uh, democratic uh, oversight and, and and public oversight over these things. And now we are experimenting with uh, technologies that have the potential to be extremely disruptive to cause enormous damage. And not to mention the potential that at some point we get some general AI that actually is as smart as we are and then might have ideas of, of its own how to, how to coexist with us as the human race. Um, so it, is, it worries me very much that 
um, as, as much uh, you know, admiration I have for these disruptive tech entrepreneurs, I, I don't want them to run our politics. And I think we've all had recent examples where there can be quite idiosyncratic uh, political choices made by some of these outstanding uh, entrepreneurs. So it's a, it's a challenge to um, get general government, central government up to speed to catch that uh, development and, and, and make sure that we uh, as a public, as the public um, are not, uh, you know, end up in some techno, uh, te techno um, nightmare in which um, individual idiosyncratic personalities rule the world like in a James Bond movie. Are you concerned as a European economist, or someone living in Europe and working at the Kiel Institute, that the one thing Europe seems to excel at in economic terms is regulating big tech? Is this dangerous because Europe itself um, is going through an economic downturn and for all the chaos and problems with America, the American economy is reasonably healthy. It is true that if you look at the, the, the current outlook, uh, Europe is having its issues, but uh, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a war and uh, not a minor war, but quite a major war at our doorstep that has affected our energy supplies, that has affected our supply chains, that has uh, affected a lot of things. And you see this in you see this in history that wars are really bad. They have external costs and they're particularly bad for the neighbors. And if anything, US has probably been at the winning side of this war because Europe would become dependent on American LNG and other things. So I wouldn't overrate the short-term outlook. I think there are issues in Europe, there are issues in, in, in the US, um, both in economic and political terms. Uh, stability or democracies are not in particularly good shape on either side of the Atlantic. I'm not overly worried about Europe not having the sort of the human, uh, the sort of the human capital, the the, uh, the the science to compete. Actually, I think a lot of the AI innovation is, of course, done in the US, but the Europeans are are are, are part of this, and, and there's no reason to believe that we can't do this. We do have an issue that privacy data protection is a more imminent concern in Europe and that makes it harder for uh, companies to uh, emerge and many of them go to the US, good for the US, but in my, in my perception this is still pretty much a cross-Atlantic knowledge base that we're drawing on. The bigger question is, is, is how, we, how we interact with China in the future. I want to get to China, but you, you, you use this term cross-Atlantic sounds very attractive for internationalists, but it doesn't benefit European economies. If a, a Mustafa Suleiman, for example, mm -hmm. the co-founder of DeepMinds, who founded the company in London, now lives in Palo Alto, and so many other leading European technologists have found their way, particularly to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. um, I do think we, Europe has a uh, strategic um, a disadvantage when it comes to disruptive technologies. It is a culture that is more, is you know, older that uh, is, is slower in adjusting. But eventually, we adopt the technologies, we catch up, um, and we invent some of them along the way. So it's it's it's. I, I guess it's been a give and take um, all along. More take than give, I think, uh, Moritz, in terms of America taking and Europe giving. If you look at things like productivity statistics, per capita income, you know, Europe still hosts some of the highest income countries in the world, so places that do rather well, but I agree we need to get better at 
making the space or creating the space for innovation. I'm, I'm deeply convinced and uh, I, I say this all the time that we've become really, um, we, we Europe has become really scared of change and with demography and aging societies, uh, risk aversion will only increase. So we have a problem there, no question. We had earlier today on the show Sandrine, uh, Sandrine Dixon uh, de Clare from the Club of Rome who was citing small European countries as models for toleration, openness and for rethinking the good life in the age of 21st century capitalism, well-being. She brought up countries like Scotland and Wales and some of the Baltics. This, from your point of view as an economist, um, uh, uh, are small European countries, often Denmark comes up in this context too, uh, are European countries experimenting with a, a regenerative economic thinking, a circular economics, reacting against the extractive nature of traditional capitalism? Is that where their originality, their innovation may come? I do, I do think that at least until the, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, Europe had a competitive edge in green technologies and not so thinking about green industry but circular economies about as you call it the good life building cities that are worth living in that are not you know just basically highways with cars where cars go from a to b but where people like to be together as a, as a population so that seems quite sustainable and definitely one of european strength but um as some say the ia has been you know a declaration of war by america on european green tech and we need to respond to that you mentioned China earlier, Moritz. Does, does the China model offer an alternative in economic terms to the Euro-American model of uh, liberal capitalism, a, a more centralized authoritarian system? Maybe we could include Singapore with this to a non-democratic capitalism. And Are you concerned with that as countries outside Europe try to develop and emulate um, East Asian or, or European or North American powerhouses? I don't think that we have a, val a valid and, and long-term, even medium-term alternative to, to democracy, liberal democracies, simply for the reason that... We, meaning human beings or Europeans? Um, I think we as human beings, because the... Um, the, 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 there is a, the democracy means there's a market for politics and, and politicians compete for votes and um, compete for solutions and I think that in that competition there is a lot of inbuilt dynamism and a select as a meritocracy and selection of new people. All autocracies, all authoritarian regimes at some point run into the problem of succession, they run into the problem of how many good other people can the leader tolerate uh, around him, uh, typically him or her, because you don't want any alternatives. You, you really depend on sort of the individual personality getting things right. And we get stupid and, and sometimes like not very capable politicians being elected, but then we have a mechanism to throw them out again after four years, as it happened in the US not, not such a long time ago. So um, that mechanism is lacking and, and, and there isn't a single example of an authoritarian or autocratic regime that has solved that problem. Final question, Moritz. Uh, we began with you suggesting the word a, a Gutenberg moment. Perhaps yeah. European states, if they could have gone back to that Gutenberg moment, would have regulated differently or behaved differently. 
uh, in conclusion, finally, what would you recommend governments, regulators to do on the AI front? What, what should and shouldn't be done in very concrete terms over the next three to five years as this revolution becomes more and more real? I think I'm going, to, I'm going to start with Gutenberg again, because Gutenberg, in my view, that Gutenberg moment, you mentioned of book printing, was with all the negative things that came from political radicalization, it was, it was a development that increased human freedom, human creativity. We were able to share, to read, to stand on the shoulders of others. It was a tremendous moment of progress. I think with AI, as you say, the risk is that at some point this is no longer a tool that increases human freedom and human liberties, but that it can be turned against us, both by evil governments, but also potentially by AI itself. And whatever regulation has does in the next few years, and there are a few things that are being proposed and discussed, you know, it is it is very important that we have that compass. That in the end, the guiding principle is is human freedom, human liberty, human agency, and anything that restricts that and, and and decreases that and even threatens it fundamentally. If we have some big general AI that uh, um, um, you know takes over uh, integrated systems, etc then uh, that's a development that we can't go. So the guiding principle must be preserve and increase human liberty and freedom and not decrease it.